Join me on my hunt as we travel in search of stories through the wind door. This journey has been long anticipated, and we are ready. Listeners, and welcome back to another episode of Through the Wind Door, where we are going to have four, five episodes of conversations on the final five, or uh, in some cases, six chapters of Tiger's Eye. And that's before we even get to however many episodes it's going to take for us to do the synopsis and final thoughts on the book as a whole. Uh, I hope you haven't minded us. I hope you haven't minded listening to us ramble on and on as we talk about things. In some cases, where we're just talking about our own experiences while reading this book or while doing this podcast in general. I hope it's all been entertaining for you, but I promise there is plenty of content that is focused in on the story that you are actually reading today. And over the course of this Skype conversation that you're listening to right now, we'll see how far we get on the... I'm sorry, how many words was it that we'd written in our outline here, Toby? Uh, uh, 7,500. Now, keep in mind, when we write these outlines, we are not going back and necessarily reading everything that we have written as a part of warming ourselves up to have this conversation. Sometimes we read directly from the outline because the points that we ended up making were so well-worded or concise that to try and frame it any other way would just seem to be more meandering or less pithy. And now you get to play the game of trying to figure out when we're reading from a script. And and when we're just reading off the cuff. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and thanks to my editing, you may be right or you may be wrong. Or both? <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm I, I'm a little bit punchy at the moment. I uh, I was just telling Toby that moments before we were preparing to talk, I have gotten like serious sneezing and congestion for the first time since... Uh, the pandemic started, meaning I don't actually think that I'm sick. Maybe I have a cold or something mm-hmm. like that. But it's been a very long time since I've had even a minor sickness now. Uh, mm-hmm. And it suddenly just came on me all of a sudden. But yeah, I had we're... still had some day quill laying around the apartment. I've got some vitamin C laden water that I'm drinking right here. And I seem to have mostly recovered. So we'll see how far we get before any other potential symptoms come on. But it does mean that, you know, I may, I guess I'm, I'm just, okay, maybe I'm not just punchy because what I just experienced. Maybe I'm just punchy because. He's he's a little high on cough syrup, everyone. (laughs) No, I, I think it's just relating the experience of what it's been like to try and cover all of the thoughts we have on Tiger's Eye has been kind of a a momentous epic journey in and of itself. Mm. So I guess if nothing else, it's thematic. Yeah. Yeah. Greg. Yeah. We're going to be talking about Steamheart for a year, aren't we? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) I don't even 40 chapters. I... Oh, God, you're right. That's... Okay, well... That's not an indictment on the length of the book, because it flies by. It's just that it's an indictment on our ability to be focused and concise. One of the things that have taken up so much of the talking time has been about the difference in the story's layout in comparison to other stories in the New Century oeuvre. I mean think about it. Yes, Let Them Go was relatively concise and it was written in a short amount of time as well, but that speaks a little bit to the nature of what kind of story it's trying to tell. 
and in the case of secret rooms that was also relatively small right up until alex added eight more chapters in order to flesh out that entire story but for the most part we kept the overall number of chapters down to a small number even after we started dividing our individual Skype conversations into two episodes apiece. The amount of time we talked about and what we talked about managed to stay relatively on topic. We didn't sprawl a whole lot. It's just in terms of Tiger's Eye, and this is one of the things we're going to be getting back into today, is that it does something that most of the other books won't necessarily do. Yes, when we eventually talk about Steamheart, it is going to be this interesting, complicated mishmash where, because it, it's an ensemble cast, it's going to have many different Tones, protagonists. Feedings of genre and protagonists, as you say. Yeah, exactly. Narrating what's going on. But for those of you that are long-term fans of New Century, you already know that people start getting a taste for that level of storytelling when they get into The Princess Thieves. <laughs> Because of, and <laughs> that that's gonna ha- that's gonna be its own conversation in terms of how that book chooses to narrate. In this case, Tiger's Eye is different enough because of all the extra stuff that gets layered in in terms of not just the story, but who's telling it, how that perspective lends differences to the way the story feels, and how it opens up, especially in terms of going back and learning about things from a different perspective or learning about things that previous storytellers couldn't possibly have known about, especially if they were merely thoughts in somebody else's head. Mm -mm. Before we start getting into the bulk of what these final chapters are about, let's take a brief dip back into the overall resolution of the story in Leon. Mm. Now, Last we left off, our cat's protagonists were going to be executed, so that wasn't great. Yeah, well, okay, yeah. It seems, it seems like this is the end of the road for our heroes, but fortunately they are not alone in this place, as you, we assume you will have already read the story, so we don't need to go blow by blow with this. But as alluded to in some of our previous conversations, it turns out that Quincy P. Matthews is not just someone willing to uh, use his privilege and his ability as an orator and a lawyer to stand up for the Aboriginal Tigers. He's also willing to actually break his country's laws in order to do the right thing, which makes it stand apart from the story that this part of uh, Tiger's Eye was drawing on, namely Amistad. I haven't watched all of Amistad in a long time, but I feel relatively certain, especially after listening to Alex's podcast on it, that that situation was basically solved within the complicated and broken legal system that this courtroom drama took place in. But no, here, Matthews uh, gets together some of his people with She-Ra because she is obviously the best translator they have accessible to them and gets them all free and says, okay, well, we're going to do the small good we can now. We're going to rescue you and send you back across the ocean with a captain we trust. And we are going to continue to try and solve these enormous problems over here. But in the meantime, maybe you can get your people ready for the danger they don't even know is coming for them. I think it is significant that Matthews, Shira, and their companions not only provide these cats with freedom, but that they give them vital knowledge of what the Lions of Albion are planning for the tribes of the New World. It's not just a simple practical matter of unlocking the cages of the cats and letting them go free. It's a threat that goes so much bigger. And by providing their allies with this 
all-important intel. It shows a collaboration between these lions with their conscience and the tribes. They will defend their home and fight this war on one side, while the lions fight it on another frontier. And they become united in a broader effort to push back against this cruel system, which means that although salvation is coming from a group of lions, which risks proximity to a variation of the white saviour trope, that it has to be the efforts of solely white or white-coded individuals to enact change, the approaching fight against injustice feels more like the effort of one tribe, people of all ethnicities pushing against this in different parts of the world because it is right. Well, yeah, when you brought this up as part of our outline conversation, I honestly hadn't even thought about it in terms of the overused and frankly problematic trope of white savior, as Mm. you yourself put it. In this case, of course, they need allies on this side of the ocean in order to be able to navigate the problems that are going on here. Um, Mm. It's not simply, they, they are, they have an ocean between themselves and their home. And so therefore they need to accept help from those who are more knowledgeable about the situation, those who have the resources in order to attain their freedom. But it also is a function of things that the Aboriginal cats did, or at the very least things that Crow herself managed to do by developing a rapport with Dr. Shera. And when you mentioned that thing you did a second ago about this being an effort of one tribe, you one of the things you also pointed out was the significance of Hrau embracing the doctor and calling her sister. Mm. Because that that sort of encapsulates a little bit of that idea that even though they occupy the doctor characterizes as this heartless land and Rouse says, no, it's not all heartless. We have found good people, even though you come from a culture that is completely unlike ours, and many parts of it wishes to subjugate us in order to maintain its own supremacy. Communication has been had, rapport has been developed, and they have found allies even here. I don't Mm. necessarily know that that contributes to the idea of them being a part of this one tribe that Harau has helped spear, but maybe it feels a little bit more like the relationship, sometimes complicated relationship, that groups like, say, those uh, on the LGBTQ spectrum have with people that are cis and straight and non-questioning of their own gender or gender roles and yet still stand up for those that are not a part of the mainstream or not mainstream Mm -hmm. enough thanks to pushback from more conservative elements of quote-unquote civilized societies Mm -hmm. so yeah it's it's a difficult needle Red, I would say. Yeah. yeah, a situation that you, when you put it down to paper, it's important to frame it in the right way. And I think it comes down to the fact that I think it would be so dejecting to see an entire system that was completely devoid of anyone who looked at this and said, this is wrong, or who was willing to do something. And I think this situation shows that that is not the case, that there are people doing this, but they are few in number and they can only do a certain amount of good. They can't solve everything overnight by breaking the law. They can only save this many people this night. And Shira goes back into her heartless country to try and do more good, but it is through incremental steps like this, and that's why I think it ha- it become it's really essential because. 
So much of New Century's fiction is the confrontation of big, frightening concepts, things that will drive people into existential depression. But the author, and by extension Frau, looks at that and finds something that you can hold on to. Leon may well be a country with a lack of compassion, but there are still people within it that are willing to nurture hope. Which is why I think Frau recognising that is important because it's not this statement that everything is okay now because we know that there are at least some of them fighting it's a case of it hasn't lost its heart yet well incremental victories that's a concept that has a long history when you look at some of the other popular fiction of the day Incremental victories and slow progress was one of the things that, say, the show The West Wing champion all the time, because Mm -hmm. it was very often the only way that any progress at all would seem to be made uh, in terms of political victories and social upheaval and everything like that. But Mm -hmm. incremental victory or finding something to preserve some some small success to be had in the wake of a lot of other things continuing to be bad or going on wrong. That is going to be an ongoing theme in New Century, that you have to take your successes where they can, and you have to build on your successes where they can, and you have to make the right connections so that you have enough of the right people with the right power working together in order to hopefully one day resolve the bigger issues. Mm. And, you know, sometimes you fall down, sometimes you fail. Hrow wants to rescue all those other slaves in the shipyard, but Matthews has to say, no, we, we can't, we don't have the resources to possibly do that, and we'll be tipping our hand too much if we try. Mm. We have to be satisfied with this one small success of mm. getting you out of here at least. You, the ones that we have managed to open up a dialogue with so that plants a future seed for potential success down the road. Mm. And it's frightening because we don't get to see what happens next on this side of the ocean for you know, a long time. We have yet to see it. I mean, Toby says that. But at time of editing, Panther Soul is actually coming up fast. Toby didn't know that when we first recorded, because at that point, Alex was still struggling with being able to delve deep into his writing because of emotional issues. He's since gotten past that, thanks to the election, and is now writing like a madman while he has that energy, meaning that we're currently in a racing match to see what comes out first the written version of Panther Soul, or my and Toby's quick review on Stone String Maidens. But I'm getting ahead of myself. And mm. it's because we hope that Matthews, Shira, and their allies are able to do more of this, but this was a big trial that happened just recently. There was a lot of attention over it, so for them to suddenly be gone the next day you have to imagine that there is fallout from it. And so we don't know what happens next. And that does concern me thinking about it. Alex has a tendency to want to be able to reuse his characters in order to continue to build Mm. the overall mythology. Much like what happens in old mythological tales, there are heroes and sometimes they succeed and sometimes they fall. But very often, you don't necessarily need to worry about them dying off screen because that's not nearly dramatic enough. Good storytelling always has to involve sacrifice and death meaning something as part Mm. of the overall story. So I, I highly suspect that we haven't seen the last of of Quincy P. Matthews and Dr. Shira, or even potentially, um, potentially King Captain. Louis. Oh, well, well, King <laughs> Louis is not a hero in this case. And to be perfectly <laughs> honest, he's not even necessarily a villain per se. He is a symbol of empire of, mm. you know, he was there long enough to espouse the beliefs 
of this culture, which is meant to resemble the British Empire, as we've gotten into already. And honestly, even if he dies, there is just going to be another king or yeah. another representative of that world. No, the, the thing I was going to say is that if we are likely to see anybody that is either a representative of that world and a villain or anti-hero or something in between would be Captain Queensbury, mm-hmm. who we now understand to be more complex than the cold-hearted, you know, numbers woman who, you know, was not wanting to inflict unnecessary pain, but still willing to take part in and take success from, wealth from, an inherently evil job, basically. Mm. But she has apparently found something inside of her. We And we don't even... Oh. Oops, sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. Did... did was there a Wendigo in your room? You just decided to leave dramatically? <laughs> no, I was just moving my foot in accidentally hit the table. <laughs> no, um, carry on. Okay. Um, we now understand that there is complexity in her, but part of what we talked about last time is that we never actually see all that much inside her own head. We hear her narrate things and we hear her say things to King Louis and Mm. we hear talked about her decisions the things that she did the things that she could have done Mm. and the quote unquote introductions that she made Mm. and it seems clear that there is something going on inside her and we don't yet know how that's going to play out we have um, to infer from her actions for the time being. Exactly so. I would hope that because she is a complicated character, that we are going to see her again in some form, mm. whether it's on the side of the bad guys or as a complicated neutral person that you know could do well for our heroes or, you know, Managed to gain some level of like, okay, yeah, sure, I'll I'll do this thing for you if you scratch my back over here. I want the brushy brushes. No. <laughs> That's never all the motive, all the motivation just boils down to the brushy brushes. <laughs> but she certainly seems to be. Div- I think the way her character is left by the end of the story is very much a case of characters intuiting things about her that indicate that for the first time she might actually have more to her than what appears on the surface that Mm. there's a lot of her appears to be a character who is defined by superficial that you think is going to be exactly as she appears and there are little telltale signs when you go back on a revisit that show that she is perhaps not necessarily as outright evil and irredeemable as say mohawk it's Mm. she's someone who is invested in this but not necessarily deriving pleasure or satisfaction from the actual suffering of these cats and so when so when shira says beatrix is a bad lion she is selfish and cold and heartless but I suspect she is not all bad. They're discussing with a level of uncertainty, which is why her journey feels like it's just beginning. Yeah. People are familiar with the concept of alignment systems from Dungeons and Dragons. The mm. way they always frame it is on two basic axes. One is, is order versus chaos, and the other is good versus evil. And the problem with using those terms, specifically good versus evil, is that it frames it in the perspective of associating certain kinds of values with each side, and that good is always absolutely good, and evil is always dark, and you know, an evil person will always be associated with like these kinds of 
values and everything like that. We we see that as the uh, you know the evil is the Nazis and everything like that. Although mm-hmm. with current events, you know I'm not even going to get into that. But <laughs> the the term that I would rather use to describe these kinds of characters, which allow for more nuance, is the axis of selfishness versus selflessness Mm. because there can potentially be downsides to being too selfless at least in terms of a person not taking care enough of their own needs that's something i've experienced enough in terms of my own personal growth is the idea of caring more about other people and not caring enough about myself but very often the things that we associate with people being evil could better be described as people being selfish, people caring more about themselves mm. than they do about anybody else around them. And mm. if we were to describe Queensbury into this axis, she is very much a selfish character. Thus far, the things that she has done... If any of them could be termed as good, they tend to lean towards selfless things that she could do that don't necessarily come at a cost to her. But then, as you pointed out last time as well, she could have potentially gained advantage by giving up Miguel to King Louis. And she decided to give up whatever advantage that could have given her in order to ensure the possibility that Miguel stays where he belongs. Because mm. clearly she saw something going on in terms of, oh, Miguel isn't just this pet that I acquired. Miguel could potentially actually be a person because of the way I've seen him interacting with the cats during this voyage. Like there's this whole section where after Miguel has left the captain's person, And we only hear her speak a couple of times in regards to the voyage on the boat. And then, of course, we have her thoughts, her words during the trial. But we never see her interact with anybody else all of that much. So Mm. it seems like there could be all of this development just out of sight. And that that has affected her choice to make some unselfish decisions Mm. and weighing up for herself how far she is willing to take that. Obviously, maybe further on down the line, we'll continue to see the potential further evolution of that. What's remarkable about her actions in response to the cat tribe members gaining their freedom and killing the majority of her crew and her surviving that is that she is remarkably not vindictive in the sense of she is not malicious towards them in the sense that she will talk shit about them and say you know oh they're most likely uh, savages yeah yeah but she said like that's not any different to what her stance was towards them before this and she kind of is in a slightly indifferent you know oh we may die and that's she kind of almost has this acceptance of it so that when they actually see her line of thinking or at least just agree to do what she has suggested she seems to be genuinely surprised by that and go oh odd okay well let me do this and i think it comes back to miguel because she could very well feel betrayed by Miguel because she had a certain level of attachment to him, enough to keep him as a pet. She must have put two and two together and realised that from what she observed of his closeness and the fact that he is lumped in with the rest of these cats, to that he is more intelligent than she realised and that he was instrumental in their liberation. Mm. So there could be a feeling of betrayal there. And so when she has an opportunity to kind of get rid of him and get something out of it, you would not be surprised. It, it, not only would she possibly be motivated by personal gain, she would actually have the additional motivation of getting back at 
someone or something that betrayed her trust or just betrayed her expectations of them. But the fact that she still doesn't do that, I think is remarkable that as many negative connotations that we can level at her, she isn't actually all that vindictive either towards Miguel or to the cats. You know, something I think that we need to give proper credit for, and it it opens up a little bit of a long, a larger conversation, but I'll try and keep it down to a minimum. Mm-hmm. When we talk about the ability for redemption, we talk about the ability to become a better person. Mm-hmm. A person's brain has to be willing to accept new input such to the point where they can decide that they were wrong about something and Mm. deciding that you're wrong about something isn't an easy thing it's not easy for me and i'm one of the most excuse me (laughs) that that feels a little self-aggrandizing here. i am the most open i am the most i'm the most humble person in the world no i people have said of me that i have a remarkably open mind Great, you have a remarkably open mind. <laughs> See, now now we can put that on a quote. Right, <laughs> you have a remarkably open mind, Toby Ungius. <laughs> <laughs> but the point, and, and I have my own reasons for being willing to accept that I'm wrong that have some negative connotations to them as well, you know, in, in terms of not necessarily always having the strength to stand up for what I believe in uh, if I'm being faced down by a more uh, person that I feel is better able to argue their point than I am able to argue mine. But the point is, is that if Beatrix has the capacity to become a better person, it's because she has the opportunity to learn from her experiences and make a choice to incorporate that knowledge into herself and have it change how she chooses to function in the world. One could say that this has been a major eye-opening moment for her. We don't see how that's going how this is going to change her, but as you keep saying, we see in her actions that she makes unexpected choices along the way that have to be a result of her taking in this new information, you know, the information that seems obvious and the information that we have to infer that she might have gained because of her observing what is going on in the world around her. And that can be incredibly important because Mm. if you're not willing to change or if you're not willing to accept that you might be wrong on something, that is a potential path to evil as well. The world around us doesn't remain in stasis. It's not a philosopher's sphere where we know that this one thing is perfect and this one thing is not. We need to accept that the thing that we knew for certain was true at one point might not be true anymore because that world doesn't exist anymore. A person is smart. People are dumb, panicky, dangerous animals, and you know it. 1,500 years ago, everybody knew the Earth was the center of the universe. 500 years ago, everybody knew the Earth was flat. And 15 minutes ago, you knew that people were alone on this planet. Imagine what you'll know tomorrow. Hmm. So that's what gives me hope for someone like Captain Queensbury as opposed to some of the villains that we end up meeting along the way who are trying to uphold a structure that supports them and gives them power or say like mayor buck are hoping to return everybody to such a power structure even as the world is trying to move beyond it Mm. One could even argue that hope for a change in Beatrix is tied to the hope we have for the world itself to change. That said, without spoiling later characters who undergo similar circumstances, 
I have a greater hope for Beatrix to change for one simple reason. She may have found a way to thrive in the society she is in, but that is not the same as directly benefiting from said society. I revisit that scene with her and Mohawk, and even though she is his superior, she seems to seethe with hate for him. I also look at the fact that she chose to cuddle and play with Miguel even a little, and I find myself wondering if she is starved for affection. While this is only my supposition, when I asked Loretta about it, she went on to say that Beatrix taking those plants might be a further extension of that. To paraphrase Loretta's words, Beatrix needs something to nurture so that her heart doesn't die completely. Plants don't judge her, and they don't make her look weak in front of her crew. The captain may be in a place of power, but I suspect she has no one to truly confide in, no one she trusts to have her back if it were not for that power. That puts her conversation with Shira in a new light. She may be trying to mentor the doctor into being more like her, but perhaps that is in some way also trying to open a rapport with one of the only people on board that she feels like she could trust. But the job itself only provides her financial stability. I suspect it provides little beside that, and even less if the GATC considers her a liability. She may do whatever she has to to survive and thrive, but maybe she can also likely see the potential to thrive in a world that isn't quite as heartless as the one she grew up in. Maybe she has reflected on her attempts to show Shira the way things are, and now sees Shira's communion with Rao, and ponders the glimmer of something better. Or maybe part of it is that she thinks her opportunity to work within the crappy system is ruined, and if she's already going to start playing outside the rules, why do anything that would benefit her inside those rules? And as it just so happens, Alex just put out some brand new artwork for Beatrix, showing that indeed, she will be back in Panther Soul. Based on her outfit, her cutlass, and fancy hat, I feel like it's not too much to presume that maybe she has abandoned her old job, and has embraced a future as a pirate. All purely speculation, mind. But back to Toby's thoughts on the matter. I think this is important because this establishes a precedent for an antagonist in the story who is capable of making a realization and reevaluating their own behavior and going towards a change that we maybe don't necessarily see the end result of, and it centers around Miguel. Mm. Well, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. um... It was here that I referenced a previous episode where I mused on Miguel being a bit of chaos resulting from the wind doors that is similar to the effect of Wendigo, but less destructive. His presence is in fact constructive, making possible a better world merely by interacting with Rama. Miguel kind of embodies this element of change and the unfamiliar, because he is literally alien to this world, and so you can't help but feel a feeling of, like, a wave of change just by a community being introduced to him. Mm -hmm. They all evaluate things, and what that means his presence in the story provokes is responses from people when they are confronted with change you have people like hucker who are staunchly trying to kill it before it has a chance to enact whatever it is that he suspects he it will it seeks to enact uh you have Crow who is at first indifferent to this element of change, but then becomes invested in it and starts growing more and more aware of the fact that this is a change that she needs. You have the other side of Albion, who there are some people, positions of power, who find it relatively sort of comical and think, oh, I'll keep it as a pet. And then (laughs) when they find out that this change will mean that they'll be thrown with a bunch of shit, they think, oh, maybe I won't accept it. And then you have this person who wanted to kind of 
keep it in a controlled, manageable position as a pet, and then realises its true nature, allows it to have a certain effect on her. So Miguel is this person who provides this opportunity for people to be confronted by something unfamiliar to themselves, and that's what provokes all of these moments of character development and character introspection. Change is going to come eventually, no matter how hard we fight it. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> but that's getting ahead of ourselves slightly, because that is a um, part of Hakka's story. Hakka is going to be the bulk of what we're going to be talking about going forward, because there is a lot to discuss about his story. And I just found it very interesting that you introduced Miguel as being a focal point for change, because that is like that. Well, there's there's change coming from a couple different sources. It just so happens that Miguel ends up being a harbinger of that change and not necessarily in ways that Haka expects. Mm -hmm. But before we get too far into Haka's story, I did want to have you have a chance to bring up something else in our outline document here because it involves mm -hmm. a piece of Alex Sharon's oeuvre that I have not had a chance to listen to. You had things to say about Quincy, Quincy P. Matthews. Matthews. Yeah, as mm -hmm. relates to um, their recent episode on this... Brotherhood uh, of the Wolf. Brotherhood of the Wolf, which I think is a French movie. Uh, yes, and yeah. I have. I am not aware of it, and it sounds like it's difficult to track down a version of the film that's entirely satisfactory in terms of one version has this, which is good, but it doesn't have something else. Anyway, listen to the show, you'll get all the details there. But um, something that uh, Alex brought up, because um, he described the character of Quincy P. Matthews as a dashing lawyer and the daredevil scarlet pimpernel of a lion lawyer. And I see what he means in that he seemingly leads a double life and rescues people in a secret and in an aristocratic setting stuffed with powdered wigs, though for Matthews, the guillotining of the rich hasn't started yet, pads crossed. Uh, however... <laughs> A key difference between uh, Matthews and the character of the Scarlet Pimpernel, who appeared in the series of historical fiction novels written by Baroness uh, Auxey, uh, I am butchering that or guillotining that, whichever you prefer, uh, <laughs> between 1905 and 1940. The Pimpernel rescues aristocrats from the guillotine, while Matthews rescues slaves from captivity. And I'm pretty sure I know which one stands in better estimation for us. Yeah, so, I I would say that, like, I'm familiar with the Scarlet Pimpernel as a thing, and mm. I may have been one of those books that had a, a graphic novel version that I read back when I was a kid, but I honestly didn't remember enough of it to be able to say one way or the other. But mm. if we were going to associate an archetype or a character with Quincy Matthews that actually feels like it would be relevant i'd say that you know we should put a domino mask on him and a big hat and call him zorro instead but um <laughs> yes well that's the thing is that um from what i've read the scarlet pimpernel is kind of credited as one of the first characters that was it has a secret identity and is a hero who has a double life where their public persona is kind of a wealthy fop who everyone dismisses but mm. in, at night they don the persona and become this hero of the people or something like that or the rich i guess i i haven't <laughs> read the books maybe the better nuance but considering it was written by a literal baroness you know yeah that's something to consider yeah consider uh, the source always. yeah yeah when you look at the time period of these books were written between 1905 and 1940, they do naturally lead into Zorro and then the serials of Superman and Batman. So that's actually an interesting piece of trivia, or a to use a different word that won't get me called up by a certain teacher. It is a revealing detail of the character's history. But if I was to say a different superhero that... Uh, 
Quincy P. Matthews reminds me of. It's uh, who Alex might have uh, deliberately been invoking, which is Daredevil. Mm. And it's because of the Matt Murdock slash Daredevil sort of double life of at day he is a lawyer who is trying to do some good working within the law, but when that doesn't work, he relies upon his other identity to enact the justice that is very important to him. Mm. I'm not overly familiar with the character, so I won't go into much more detail than that, but I do appreciate that Quincy P. Matthews is not this sort of public fop that is trying to make people underestimate him. He is throwing everything into this, whether Mm -hmm. it's in public or in secret. He's using his privilege to his advantage, Mm. but he is far more selfless than Captain Queensbury in that he is willing to put his money where his mouth is. He, He obviously is only willing to do so tactically like you know as he mentioned they can't possibly rescue all the slaves here that would make way too much of a ruckus but you know he is still willing to take action beyond that which his privilege allows him to in order to accomplish a greater good committed to the cause yeah exactly it makes me think a little bit of uh, I did have a chance to see Bridge of Spies recently. I was which... very disappointed when that film didn't have a literal bridge of uh, James <laughs> Bond's. Just <laughs> Well, okay, so Alex and Sharon did a quick review on it because they were doing their season of Spielberg. And this is a movie that I completely passed by at the time, but I have had a chance to see it all the way through now. And it's obviously based on some real-world events. But the way things end up getting laid out, obviously, I recommend that you see it. I recommend that you listen to what Alex and Sharon have to say about it. But that is another example of a character where he is just a lawyer who is particularly good at what he does. But he's put into this unenviable situation where he has to defend someone who everyone has just decided is a Russian spy during the height of red paranoia and everything like that. The thing that they want him to do is just to make it look like, to make it look like the spy is getting a fair shake. When really the deck has already been stacked and the trial is just political theater. Meanwhile, the lawyer protagonist played by Tom Hanks didn't want to have to do this to begin with. But the powers that be wanted him because of his supposed unimpeachable belief in the system. And that comes with the lawyer actually trying to do everything within the law to get a better shake for his client. And refusing to play ball with the CIA when it comes to compromising his ideals. He is going to do his job because he believes in the ideals that America supposedly stands for. Even when other Americans don't always live up to those ideals. Oh, yes, our country is so great because mm-hmm. even a convicted spy has the opportunity to a proper. De- no, he's not. You're, you're, yeah. you're, ra- you're railroading him and you're not even willing to admit it. And then you're getting mad because you actually hired someone that believes in this broken system that you're trying to prop up here. It's, it's the Why kind did we of- hire a lawyer who looks like Tom Hanks? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. This is the kind of role that Tom Hanks is sort of born to play a little bit. And then when he gets put into further situations where like, oh yeah, the thing that you thought might happen, it ended up happening. Great, we're going to have you be the Shots representative. Face. Yeah, exactly. We're, we're going to have you be the representative putting your life on the line in order to gain an advantage for our country. And he's like, okay, fine, I'll, I'll go ahead and do this for you, but I'm going to want something in return. But it's not like a selfish want. It's, hey, I'm going to want to... I'm going to insist on us doing it this way because you're the one forcing me into the situation right now. I'm going to make you play by my rules a little bit and try and do something actually good rather than doing something selfish. You know, it definitely has a little bit of that feel to it here where um, Uh these difficult circumstances help determine who you are as a person, what you believe in. 
uh, even mm-hmm. as everybody else. It's it's sort of a li- very much when, a little bit of a Steve Rogers situation. Yeah. No, you move. Exactly. I I think that in some ways it's the situations are similar in that uh, both Matthews and uh, Queensbury are essentially put into a position where it's like, okay, we nominally have to do this. You just have to, they're kind of encouraged to just let the system play out. Mm. But they, when you see what someone does in the face of overwhelming pressure to conform, Mm. that you kind of see where their true character is forged is if they actually do do something and for Matthew it is a very Steve Rogers no I will actually fight and fight and even when the battle is seemingly lost I'm going to do what I can if the system isn't going to take responsibility I will and for Queensbury it's a case of just while maintaining her position influencing what little she can without ever having to get out of her chair is indicative of her character where she is capable of change minute change but it is there considering the possibility that queensbury might have actually been the one that informed Matthews that all of this was going down to begin with. Like, we don't even really understand how much time passed in between the authorities in Leon taking possession of the captives and the actual trial passed. We know that time mm-hmm. has passed, but we don't know how much time has passed. So it may well be that Matthews found out about it only because, you know, it was big news and he just happened to be you know, in the right place at the right time to get his people together and marshal the defense for them. Because it doesn't sound like, unlike in the case of the spy in Bridge of Spies, no one would have necessarily taken the uh, side of the slaves if asked for or anything like that. But it does make me wonder in this case, did Queensbury like, hey, do you see this news? Nudge, nudge. I'm going to be over here now. la di da di da I mean, I am reminded of a character in the uh, Star Wars Rebels show who may actually like occupy a similar role to what uh, Queensbury ends up uh, doing, where I suppose this is slight spoilers, but I, I won't go into specifics, but there is in that show an Imperial officer who is an antagonist for at least the first season or two. And there is an episode where it's a bottle episode with him trapped with one of the main cast members. And they have, there's a lot of history there in terms of what this Imperial commander was involved in. And Mm -hmm. that gives the character he's trapped with a lot of cause to hate him. And as they talk, there's, more details that reveal a bit more humanity to him. By the end of the episode, they part having kind of helped each other to survive. But whereas our protagonist actually goes back and finds a ship of people who welcome him, the Imperial officer goes to you know, a Star Destroyer, interacts with one of the soldiers, and they're completely indifferent to him. And at that point, it begins the slow process of him becoming a double agent and actually siding with the rebellion and eventually deserting the Empire and joining the rebellion. That's kind of a potential thing I see with Greensbury, where she has this very posh accent. She seems very integrated into this Empire, but is maybe at first very slowly just nudging things where she can without losing her position, but that it could very well go to a place where she is quite active and acting as a source of information and almost potentially spearheading a resistance from within. But who knows? That could be me getting ahead of myself. I'd like to hope that that would be the case. It's weird how... As we keep talking about this, it makes me think about certain elements from Bridge of Spies more and more and think about the difference between working for something that is hard but feeling like you have people around you 
that are willing to support you in this mm. and instead on the other side having people that are working as a part of the system which affords them certain benefits affords them certain rewards but it doesn't necessarily feel like as you were saying a moment ago that anybody is really out there having that person's back who has mm. queensbury's back does she have friends does she have family does she have people inside her world that will look out for her this the way that matthews is looking out for his people the way that Rao and Shala are looking mm. out for their people. You know, it's it, it really makes you think about that a little bit. Completely. But, so first episode of five. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. An hour in. Um. <laughs> well, okay, some of our conversation was uh, pre-conversation stuff. But yeah, that's yep. true. That, that, that could very well be uh, potentially a single episode right there is our conversation mm. solely about chapter 21. Which, for clarity's sake, would be chapter 22 in the audio drama. But taking a look at the length of the remaining conversation, I think this is, in fact, as good a place as any to end part one. Part two being the remaining hour and a half of the first dialogue, or however much there is after I finish editing. Based on the themes of this episode... I think this time we'll end with an unexpected choice for the outro. Though the movie itself is not without its issues, I have more than a little fondness for the DreamWorks animated movie The Road to El Dorado. I even brought some characters from that movie up last episode, and to this day, its protagonists Tulio and Miguel, no not that one, are hailed as bisexual icons. Best of all, all the prominent songs are sung by Elton John, who always makes for a great time. So until next time, let's dance our way out to 16th Century Man. (laughs) 